Four years ago, 2015, a sad thing happened in our world. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, uh, also known as Dr. Spock uh, from Star Trek fame, passed away. And so that was a sad thing if you're a Trekkie. Any Trekkies in the house? No? Okay. Okay. All right. Two. All right. Very good. Very good. A few of us. Nobody else wants to raise their hand. But, uh, but yes, I'm glad. All right. So there's a Trekkies. You know, you know Dr. Spock, all right? That's, everybody knows Dr. Spock, I think. Well, the good folks in Canada... Um, decided to uh, allow their, their love for Dr. Spock to be known. And so they went and they collected all of, uh, there's a group of them, not all of them, this wasn't a nationwide thing, but there's a group of Trekkies that wanted to get the word out that they appreciated Dr. Spock. And so they went and collected all of the $5 notes that they could in, in Canada. This is what a normal $5 uh, note looks like. And that guy's name is Sir Wilfred Laurier. Laurier? I don't know, I don't, I don't speak French, so there's probably a French twist to that word. But anyway, that's Sir, uh, Sir Wilfred. And so they took Sir Wilfred's uh, picture and they doctored it up and they sent it around like this. This became the new, uh, uh, they drew, everybody drew Dr. Spock on their $5 bills and uh, everybody raise your hand, live long and prosper. Everybody do that. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. Come on, you can do it. Live long and prosper. Very good. All right, because that's the theme of the sermon today. So you might as well do it, okay? Because we're going to hear it a few more times. Um, but that whole theme of live long and prosper uh, was Dr. Spock's uh, little, little logo. And so they used money to advertise something that was important to them. They let the world know through their money, through their $5 notes, that uh, that was an important thing to them. And that's exactly what we want to talk about in a strange story that Jesus tells us from Luke chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to Luke chapter 16. It'll be on the screen here. Open your Bible app or whatever you have to do to get to that chapter. Uh, because we want to talk about using money to state a point. Um, and oftentimes when, when we talk about money... Um, we can come at it from lots of different angles, but I appreciate in this strange story how Jesus wraps a bunch of biblical ideas about our stuff and about our money, and, and he kind of really does it in a way that, that um, isn't guilting you into doing anything, but just painting a much bigger reality for what could be. And, and in the same way that Trekkies can use a $5 bill to communicate, I appreciated Leonard Nimoy and Dr. Spock uh, as Christian people we ought to be able to look to the use of our money to say, you know what, I love Jesus and I appreciate him and I want the world to know about him through the ways that I will use the resources that are at my disposal. And so in order to get to that though, we have to read a strange story that Jesus tells. And it's perhaps one of those that you read it and you think, I don't know, I don't know about that story. That seems that Jesus is commending something that I don't think he's, I'd like and I don't appreciate and, and nor would I find Jesus commending that very often. And so this is what it says in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse one, that Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Okay, so we already start off with a little scandal, right? Rich man hires a manager. The manager is not doing a good job with his possessions, all right? We got trouble in paradise, all right? So verse two, he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you, you cannot be my manager anymore. In other words, you're gonna be out the door here soon, so you need to get your, get your financial stuff in order. I want a report of what's going on, of what you've been doing and where I stand with my stuff. All right, so the manager said to himself, what shall I do, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. 
So I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And so he called in each of his master's debtors, all those who owed the master money, and asked him the first, how much do you owe my master? I owe him 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. They wouldn't have done debts in currency as much as they would have in goods. And so the debt is in olive oil. So he owes him 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, quick, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450, all right? If if your banker calls you tomorrow, say, hey, what do you owe on your house left? Cut it in half. You're excited, right? You're feeling, you like your banker really well right now, okay? Popular person, all right? And then he asked in verse seven, he asked the second man, and how much do you owe? Well, I owe a thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. Well, he told him, well, take your bill and make it 800. And then... Here's verse eight. This is where the story, if you're, if you're listening to this story for the very first time, you're thinking, what a dirtball. He's, he's still being a bad manager. I mean, this is why he's getting fired because he's not being a good manager, right? But then the master commended the dishonest manager for he had acted shrewdly. Let's just pause there, right? Because if you feel the tension of that, you should feel the tension of that, right? Because that's not what the story should say. Jesus told lots of stories where the bad guy is bound up and cast into eternal darkness, all right? It's kind of an extreme thing for some of the stories. But you would think that's a, this, that's a good place for that, that line. This is a good place for that line to fit, right? This guy's not only was he getting fired for being a bad manager, and then the, he kind of goes and puts it to the, the master one more time, two more times. And instead of the master coming back with, and, and he bound that lazy, wicked slave in, in shackles and threw him into outer darkness, you get this. That the master commends the dishonesty, the dishonest manager, excuse me, because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world, and this is where Jesus transitions to make a point to us. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, verse 9, to use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, I emphasize the word cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. And then this is the tag that comes, and as the story ends, and we go back to the setting around there, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And so we read that story and you think, what do we do with that? We are looking at all these stories in the book of Luke this summer that Jesus tells. And and this is by far the one that every time I read it, I, I really have to struggle with, okay, what's he telling me here? Is he telling me that it's okay to be dishonest? Is he praising me when I'm, a, I'm an under-the-table kind of swindling kind of guy? Is that what Jesus is trying to encourage us to be? And I don't think he is. But Jesus tells a story about a dishonest manager to make a point about how we, as, as if we're a follower of Jesus, how we ought to be as engaged in 
the managing and the use and the purposes of our money than any worldly person is who's just going to find themselves in a difficult spot and they're going to get very creative to find their way out of it. And so what do we do with this story? I think one of the things I want us to begin with here, I want us to think it would be helpful if we were to, number one, just consider the contrasts that Jesus highlights. I think one of the things that this story does, if you want to understand what Jesus's point is, I think you need to go through the second half of it after the story is done and Jesus begins to teach. He makes all these contrasts between this and this. And in doing so, I think you begin to see where Jesus is coming from and what Jesus wants you and I to get out of this, this story. The first contract, I think there's five or six of them. I want to highlight, they start in verse 8 all the way down through verse 13. Uh, and there's probably more of them, but these are the ones that I, I could find. Uh, but if you look in verse 8, you find I highlighted two, the first contrast. The first contrast is that Jesus draws a distinction between the people of this world and the people of the light. Now, what does that mean? The people of this world are people who probably just don't know God, don't know Jesus. They live by the world's principles. They live by the world's values. The people of the light who are people who the Bible oftentimes uses that metaphor of coming to know God as seeing the light, stepping into the light, walking in the light. Um, and so that metaphor is between people who would claim to be followers of Christ and people who are not claiming to be followers of Jesus in their life. And so he draws that distinction but there are these two groups of people that are at work in the world, um, and they both view money in a certain way. And how you see money is part of that. So we'll get to that in a moment. But that's the first distinction I want you to see is the people of this world versus the people of the light. They are living underneath two different value systems in everything, but especially about our, our money, our wealth. Um, the second one, verse 9. Jesus draws a distinction between worldly wealth and eternal dwellings. He seems to make a distinction between the stuff of this world and things that are eternal. And, and so that is not a new teaching. If you read the Bible, you know the Bible constantly talks about our stuff in terms of the stuff that will rust and moths will destroy and, and fades away, like Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, that there's most of the stuff that we have it's going to fade away. Moths are going to eat it. It's going to rust. It's going to go away. And for sure, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, when you die, you leave it all behind. And so there's that category of stuff. But Jesus raises another category of eternal things, things that last, not just your span of life, but they last into eternity. And so you've got these two categories, right? You're, going, you're making a list of, uh, of people of, of this world versus the people of light. You're making the list of worldly wealth versus eternal dwellings, eternal things. This, verse 10 gives you a third one. Um, he talks about those who can be trusted with little versus those who are trusted with much. And, and the distinction I really want you to see there is the little versus much thing. Um, oftentimes we live this world trying to ac accumulate much, right? Part of one of our goals in life is to have the most toys when we die, right? That there's a pursuit, there's a desire. Um, we are pushed in the direction of have a lot, right? That's an attractive option for most of us if we can achieve it. And so we're pushed in this world to have much. But as you read that verse, whoever can be trusted with very little... It seems as if Jesus is saying, you know what, if you go back before it, that worldly wealth versus eternal things, that I may have a lot of worldly wealth, but in Jesus' definition here, if you put your categories together, I really have little. 
But there's this category of more that Jesus wants to give to those that goes with that eternal stuff that um, he says, if you're faithful with a little, if you're not faithful with a little, um, that it has a great connection to what God gives you that is real. It is much more. Okay. So the little and more, um, um, a little and much analogy, I think is a contrast he makes. Go to verse 11. Um, He kind of goes back to the second one when he talks about worldly wealth versus true riches. Um, I think he expounds on that a little bit. So he makes the category of there's this worldly wealth, stuff that you and I deal with every day, versus true riches. And those are different things. Those are not the same things in Jesus' economy of seeing things. All right, so there's your list as you grow it. Uh, Verse 12 adds to this. uh, If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property versus property of your own, the Bible talks frequently from beginning to end that everything that you and I have, we are simply stewards of. And so this illustration of a manager put in charge of someone else's property certainly is a biblical principle, right? It is something that, that as Jesus talks about, uh, what are you going to do with everything that you've been given in life? That, that Am I going to assume it's mine? Uh, or am I going to assume this is not mine? This is all someone else's and I'm just the manager of it. And so that whole analogy of someone else's property versus property of your own. And then last but not least in verses 13, there's the contrast between God and money. There's the contrast between there's God and then there is money. And those two things, that little word cannot is an important part of that. He says, he, he, he doesn't say you shouldn't serve both God and money. He says, practically you can't. One of them is your master. One of them is what you're living for. One of them is what you live for, is what you're driven by, and that you are excited by, that you love. Um, but you cannot, you cannot serve both of them. Uh, you have to make a choice about who is going to be your master, okay? And so Jesus draws those contrasts. And I think in looking at that, as you go back and look at the story, I think you begin to see, well, what is Jesus talking about um, in, in this story? What does he want us to glean from this? And I think those lists, at least for me, help me to begin the process of understanding what he's about to say next. Because Jesus is teaching us to look at money and possessions and opportunities and our stuff in a whole new different way. And he's setting up what I think is the real point of the story. And that's the second thing I want you to see here with me this morning, that Jesus calls us to a greater vision of what our wealth is for and can do. I think what Jesus wants out of this story is for, to change the focus of your eyes, your heart, to see the world, to see your stuff, to see the things that's under your control, to see them in a different light. Now, again, oftentimes when, when we talk about money in church, oftentimes there can be a guilt element to it. I grew up with that. I, don't, being, I grew up in that, and I hear that, and I've preached that. I've been guilty of it, um, no pun intended. And so, um, but this is not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't come at us with guilt. I think what he comes at us with is just a greater vision to see the potential of what can be in your life when you see the world through the lenses that he is trying to help you see the world through. And so he calls us to a greater vision of what our wealth is for and what it can do when we live it in the way that he's about to show us, okay? So let's go back to verses eight and nine again. I want us to read through the conclusion of this weird story where this guy is guilty, first of mismanaging his master stuff, and then secondly of... of cheating him out again, but the master comes back and he does this in verse eight. Again, it says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. 
And that word is key to what we're going to think about the rest of our time here. He acted shrewdly, all right? Now, later in that passage, in that verse 8, or verse 9, excuse me, it says, I tell you to use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal uh, dwellings. In other words, again, the contrast again, right? Either living for this world or, or preparing for the world to come. And part of what Jesus is trying to get is that he's trying to help us to see our stuff as it either is something that I'm using just for this world, the people of this world, or am I living as a person of the light who recognizes that my stuff is an opportunity to prepare for something coming ahead? And so, and not just to get there, but to be welcomed into and to be received generously and, and to be celebrated when, when you get there. And so I want us to think about that word shrewdly, okay? I don't know that if you've ever said, if somebody has ever asked you, um, what character traits do you want to be known by? I don't know that shrewd has ever been a word that I've thought of, right? I don't want to be known as shrewd. That seems to have a negative connotation to it, but I don't think it is. I think it is a, a neutral word that in this context, you find a man who is dishonest in his management of his master's property, and he is shrewd in probably a negative way because he, as we'll see in a moment, there are some things that he realizes and he acts shrewdly or, or he acts in accordance with the reality of that he's in. But shrewd can also be a very biblical word. Jesus encourages us to be shrewd. Other places the Bible, it's not translated as shrewd. It's translated be awake or be alert or be prepared. And so that word shrewd is a word that um, I want to ingrain in your head. So we're going to use the word shrewd 20 times, the next five, 10 minutes here, because I want you to walk out here thinking, I want to be known by God as, as shrewd, all right? Not, uh, not anyway, as shrewd, okay? And so um, there's fun things we can do with that word, but, but we're not going to do that. And so Jesus asked the question, why do the people of God who know they will give an accounting to God live as if that day will not come? It's basically what he is trying to get us to think about when you read those verses. But why do people of the world, pagans, motivated by greed, give more thought to how they manage their money than Christians who ought to be motivated by grace and by kingdom principles and by kingdom purposes? And again, he doesn't say that you deal with the money God by just getting rid of it. It's about how our hearts are and how we see it and how we're managing it and using it that is at the key of what he says. Instead, he says, you should plan and invest your money in a way and use your money for kingdom purposes that is going to become a wonderful tool. And that money can become a wonderful tool in the hands of a shrewd, God-loving, Christ-loving person. It becomes an incredible tool that does so much good in this world in so many ways. And so what does Jesus mean when he praises the man for acting shrewdly? If you were to look up Webster's Ninth New Collegiate Dictionary, which I'm sure you have on your shelf beside your TV remote, uh, this is what shrewd means according to Webster's. It means to be clever, discerning awareness, practical, hard-hearted cleverness. Now, not just hard-heartedness, but hard-hearted cleverness and judgment, okay? So when you think about being shrewd, that's what he's leading you to be is a being a purpose a person who is focused and and is is got a target and who realizes the purpose of what he has or what she has and the purpose that he's living for or she is living for and there's a a cleverness I love that word as a part of this because I think what we're going to get to here in a second is the fun part of being a steward for God 
And so when Jesus says we should be shrewd with our resources, um, here's the way I summarize this, that we shouldn't be three things, that we should be awake to reality. If you were just look at what lessons, what is Jesus connecting with the, with the bad manager, right? You see, he's awake to reality. He is very alert to his reality, right? He knows that his job's about to end. He knows that he's got a limited window to do something that's going to help him in the future. And so he is awake to reality. I don't know, I'm not cool, but what the kids call this woke, right? He's woke, is that right? I mean, tell me, if you kids have had used that inappropriately, I won't use it second service, okay? But he's woke to reality, okay? And so he's awake to reality. He is clear on who he is serving, right? He's clear on his purpose. I need people that when I'm out of work here, because I was good to them there, they're going to welcome me in. If nothing else, it's because I can bribe them into getting into their house and I have a job there, right? Now, that's not what Jesus is commending, but it's the, the thoughtfulness, right? It's to clear on who you're serving. And number three, there's a creativity in honoring Jesus and blessing others and investing in eternity. There's a creativity that he engages in because he has this purpose and he is awake to reality, Okay? And so as a steward, I think Jesus is pointing us towards, towards shrewdness so that we are awake to our reality, that we are clear on who we are serving, and that we are creative in honoring Jesus and blessing others and investing in eternity. Now, I love the creative word there because I think oftentimes when we think of biblical stewardship, creativity is not a word that oftentimes comes to my mind. I don't know that I've ever attached that to anything I've taught or even thought about, but I so I was reading for this and preparing for this, that word creative kept coming up. And I love that picture because in reality, if we just do normal things, if I have something I want to do, if I have, if I'm really thirsty for a Coke, I can be very creative in where I search for change to find that Coke, right? I'll tear the house apart till I get my dollar eight so I can go through McDonald's, right? I will be creative to find that change, right? If I'm awake, clear, and creative, I'm going to find my dollar eight to get what I need, right? We can be creative in that uh, when we know that we want something to be a reality in our life financially, right? And so that apply that in bigger ways, right? You, you want something, and, and so you're going to be creative. You're going to find ways. You're going to sell things, right? You'll auction off children. You'll do all kinds of things to get the money that you need. I'm kidding. We don't auction off children, but you know what I mean, right? We'll be creative in saying, hey, whatever I want, I can be creative to get there. And Jesus is saying that principle that is at work in the reality of our world, a God-loving, Christ-loving person is going to transfer that energy, that creativity to say, okay, I believe in Christ and I believe Christ is coming and I believe Christ's kingdom is the most important thing I will ever find and know and live for in this world. And I believe that every person needs the opportunity to hear him and to know him. And so I hear about him and to know him. And so that creativity and that clear, clear, clear thinking, clear vision, that awakeness to those realities um, that ought to be a kingdom principle too, that we ought to be creative to be able to say, hey, I really want this to happen. And so how can I be creative to have, make that happen? What energies, what resources do I have at my disposal that are going to, to fund and to enable um, missionaries to do their thing and churches to do their things and my neighbors to come to know about Jesus and have an invitation to know about him. And so that whole idea of just being creative is key. 
Someone shared this, I saw it on my Facebook page this week that I just, I think it fits this. Um, this next picture, if you want to look at it. This is a bar of iron, and I don't know if the economic realities of this statement are correct. I have not checked iron prices or horseshoe prices this week, okay? So, but you get the principle as I read through this, right? A bar of iron costs $5, but made into horseshoes, it's worth $12. Made into needles, it's worth $3,500. And made into balance springs for watches, it's worth $300. Now, again, I haven't checked the economic realities of that, but you get the point, right? You can have something that is not worth a whole lot, but when you begin to become creative with, okay, well, how do I maximize this for God? How do I maximize this so that I use this thing that's under my control, whether it's money, whether it's property, whether it's possessions, how do I maximize this in a way that makes this the most blessing to God, blesses the most people, maybe enables God's work to be done in this world, that creativity is, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so I think as you grow in your faith, I think a part of that maturity is learning to look at everything under your control with this thought. How can I leverage this for God and his glory? How can I leverage this uh, there used, I heard a sermon years ago um, talking about Moses because God asked Moses the question, what's in your hand? And the sermon was basically, what's in your hand? And every day you and I have things passed through our hands and, and, and the question becomes, then, well, what's in my hand? How can I leverage this thing in my hand, in my control, whether it's a dollar bill, a $20 bill, a Canadian $5 bill, whatever it may be, how can I leverage this for God and for his glory? Now, again, that doesn't mean I just check everything and live in a cave. That means I have things under my control, and how do I leverage this for God and for his glory? Um, and so after the tornado, a month, a little, a little over a month ago, um, I saw a lot of that. Um, some people had money in their hands, and they gave that away to help people. Um, some people had homes that they opened and said, hey, I've got this extra room. Can someone stay here? That's leveraging something for the good of others, for God. And it's just saying, hey, this is under my control. This is in my hand. What can I leverage this? They had skills. They had talents. They had things. If you looked around a couple days after we cleaned up the church, people brought all kinds of things. Who knew they had those things? But all of a sudden, amazing things were cleaned up quickly. Um, amazing messes were cleaned up quickly because people had things in their hands and they used them for good. And so that principle, I think, needs to be a growing principle in our life, that how can I use this to help someone come to know Jesus or be encouraged in their walk with him? And so maybe that means, and I see this in the lives of people, some of you even, that I have this job, and it's a, it's a job. It, it, it could be just a job, but it's more than just a job. Or I have this business, and I, I have this business, and I, I, it could be just a business, it could pay my bills, but I want it to be more than that. This job, this business is an opportunity. It's in my hand. And how do I leverage it for the good of God and his glory and people and making those connections between God and people? So how do I leverage that? I don't know what the answer to that is, but if you, I bet if you were awoke, awake, awake to the reality, and if you are clear on who you're serving, and if you are creative, you're going to find ways that you can leverage that for God and his glory. Some of you have cash, you have money. And, uh, and there's stories that I hear sometimes of people doing kind things for other people anonymously. And, and they come to me and say, hey, do you know who did this? And I was like, I don't know who did it. But I'm really cool. it's really cool that it happened, that they took what they had and they helped you because you've got this need and they helped to meet a need. And 
that's a cool thing. That is leveraging something that you have that encourages people um, in a hard time to know that God is with them and that God loves them and that God's people care. Those are just little things along the way that people use as they are awake to those realities, that they are clear on who they are serving, and they are being creative with the things that are in their hands. And so you and I have an opportunity uh, to do that, um, to be intentional, that when you are obsessed with a relational goal, and this is the key part of this, I think, because the difference as you look at those lists of things that Jesus, that, the, that we made first, right? Those list of differences that Jesus makes. The world tends to look at people as a way to get more money. But as a Christ follower, I look at money as a way to gain more people, not in a negative way, but just to gain more people who are following Christ, who are following him more committedly because we're helping them and we're serving them. There's just two different ways of looking at money. That it's either, hey, I'm using people to get more money for me, or I'm using money to gain more people and to help more people know Christ, follow Christ, uh, be encouraged in Christ, to finish their walk in Christ. And so those are two very different things. And so, but if I'm creative, if I'm awake, if I'm alert to those kinds of things, that's, um, that grows. And you just, you begin to see the world through those lenses. Oh, this new thing is coming to my, my possession what can I do with this to, glory, to give glory to God and help people to know him more? And so you are not going to drift in that direction. You are not going to accidentally get there. It's going to happen when we are awake and that when we are um, certain, this is who I'm serving. It's Christ. It's God. It's not me. It's not money. It's not my kingdom. It's his. And, and I'm intentionally creative and I wrestle with it and I pray about it and I talk with people about it. And I say, well, what can I do with this to make God look good? And so my last thing is simply this. Um, this isn't really a point we're going to talk about. Just this is the application that I just would encourage you to take the story of Jesus and spend some time clarifying what you really value. That I would just encourage you to spend some time clarifying what you really value. Because I think Jesus would be pretty, would be pretty easy to draw out of this that Jesus is trying to tell us that, that what you do with what you have says a lot about what you really do value. And so Jesus would say, look, if you want to, to value me, if you want your life to really be centered on me, one of the ways you're going to grow in valuing me and centering your life around me is it starts with how you manage your stuff and your money and your, and your opportunities that are in your hands to do something for me with them. And so um, I just want to leave that with you, to ask you to spend some time clarifying what you really value and then go do it. Be creative with it. Go serve God with it and, and allow him over time to work through those things in your life.